This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. Our scripture reading tonight comes from Ephesians chapter 5. Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter 5. Looking at just a few verses of this tonight, verses 15 through 21. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word this evening, pray that you would illuminate our hearts to receive it, that we would um, acknowledge you in all things, that we would walk wisely before you, that we would live lives that are pleasing to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come to this text tonight in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. There is a common pattern in the letters of Paul where he opens his letters presenting the gospel talking about the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of salvation, and then he follows this with ethical application. This sort of approach serves as the model for many other things, including our Reformed catechisms. Both the Heidelberg and Westminster catechisms follow a similar pattern. They first teach us doctrine, what we are to believe concerning God, And then follow that with ethics, follow that with application, what duty God requires of us. Other books of the Bible, others of Paul's letters like Romans and Galatians and Colossians, which we looked at last fall, they do similarly. In light of what God has done for us in Christ, what should we then do as a result? And that same pattern is followed in Ephesians. Now, it was a while ago, so you might not remember, but back in December, we did look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, which is actually kind of a transition point between the two acts, if you will, of Ephesians. So in that, we saw the depth of sin and misery that we were in. We were dead in our sins and trespasses, but God raised us up from death, saved us by grace through faith in no way that we could ever earn or take credit for. But this was done with purpose. We were created and we were saved to do good works. 
And then so after that passage, Ephesians pivots to what these good works ought to be, answering the question of how then should we live in our lives and in our churches. Now, Ephesians chapters 4 and 5 present the Christian life in terms of a walk. If you've been a Christian for long, you've probably heard the Christian life described as a walk. It's a very common metaphor, and it derives in part from these passages of Scripture. It's a trip, it's a journey, it's a process. We were not saved back in chapter 2 and then instantly find ourselves being fully sanctified, having put all sin to death and living the perfect life. We are on a journey from somewhere, from sin and death, to somewhere, eternal life and glory. We are pilgrims on our way to a new homeland. The classic novel, in many ways the founder, the beginning of the modern novel, The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan captures this very well. It tells the story of Christian on his journey to the eternal city and all the troubles and detours that one might meet along the way. In Ephesians 4.1, Paul urges believers to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. And then in Ephesians 4.17, he says to no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. So in these we see a walk that is being sanctified. We see sin that is being put to death and that we are to walk in newness of life. Then in the opening part of chapter 5, Paul gives some key words about this walk and how we are to do it. He says that we are to walk in love. Now, few words in Scripture cause more confusion in our day than love. Everyone knows that Jesus says we are supposed to love God and love our neighbor, but people don't know what love actually is, what love actually means, what love actually requires. They equate love with whatever the culture says is good and nice and loving, which is often distorted. Every Lord's Day morning here, we get reminded of what love is when we read from God's law. We read from the Ten Commandments, which themselves are summarized in the two great commandments. They tell us how we love God, how we love our neighbor. Love is grounded in the law. So it is no accident after this that Paul, after he gives this command to walk in love, turns to a list of imperatives. Moral imperatives, things that we should say and do, things that we should not say and not do. Love is not a subjective feel-good matter as culture likes to make it. It is grounded in objective realities. Then another key descriptor of this walk, to set us up for the passage we're looking at tonight, is in verse 8. It says, to walk as children of light. We're to walk in the light, and not as we once walked in darkness. Or as John also puts it in 1 John 1, 5, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So to walk in and with God is to walk in light. Whereas to rebel and sin and disobey God is to walk in darkness. Think about this literally. Have you ever tried to walk in darkness? Maybe during the winter, you know, we had some storms, we had some power outages, you suddenly found yourself in the dark and you didn't know what to do. Or maybe it's at night, you're just trying to get through your house, you need to get to the restroom, or uh, maybe you're somewhere at night, you have to walk to your car or walk home. 
Walking in darkness, it's not easy. It's not enjoyable. Usually doesn't lead to good things. You can trip and fall on things you don't see. You might run into people or animals and not know that they're there. It is dangerous to walk in the dark. So too, there is spiritual danger to walking in the dark. So in summary of the text in Ephesians leading up to this point, we are to walk worthily. We are to walk not as Gentiles. We are to walk in love and we are to walk in the light. And then when we finally come to our subject passage of tonight, verses 15 through 21, we see another very important aspect of this walk. We are to walk wisely. We are to walk in wisdom in light of the great salvation that we have in Christ. And so we will look tonight at three aspects of this walk. First, we are to walk sensibly. There's a certain way of living that is fitting. It makes sense. It is the way that a redeemed person should walk. This is what we see in verses 15 through 17. Second, we are to walk spiritually. We are to walk in the Spirit. There's a couple of aspects of this that are laid out specifically for us regarding temperance and regarding worship. This is in verses 18 and 19. And third and finally, we are to walk in service in verses 20 and 21. So we see their service to God and to others. So again, walk sensibly, walk spiritually, and walk in service. First, we see that we are to walk sensibly, as we see in verses 15 through 17. Verse 15 tells us to walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. This is probably something that is easier said than done. What does it mean to be wise? I've said it before. People dedicate their entire lives to the pursuit of wisdom, but many still come up empty. Wisdom has been the pursuit of philosophers and professors and many of the great people of history. But what is biblical wisdom? Wisdom for the Christian life. Proverbs 9.10, with Proverbs itself being a book of wisdom, puts it in the clearest of terms. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Wisdom is living quorum Deo. It is living before God's face, according to God's word. As one commentator writes, it is a skill developed through reflection on scriptural truths and applying them to the experiences of life. And true wisdom is not merely contemplative or abstract because its foundation consists in the fear of the Lord. So to walk in wisdom is to walk in fear of the Lord. Now, this is not fear as in being afraid, being frightened. Or in fact, nothing is more comforting than to walk in the Lord. No, this fear is the fear of awe, of respect, of honor for someone who deserves it. And this fear will come up again later in this passage. But we see in verses 16 and 17 a couple of ways that we are to walk in the fear of the Lord. First in verse 16, we are told to make the most of the time because the days are evil. Now, this might sting a little. 
We live in a society where, because of the advances of technology, many changes and improvements to quality of life, we probably have a lot more leisure time and a lot more options for our entertainment and distraction than generations before. Most of us probably have computers. We probably have the internet and all the stuff that comes with that. Most of us have little pocket computers, cell phones, smartphones, and with a few taps, a whole world of entertainment and distraction is at our fingertips. Videos, social media, emails, news sites, whatever, it's all there and we can get it anytime we want. It's easy to get lost in them. Or it could be other things, it could be our hobbies, it could be travel, chasing new experiences. All of these, if if abused, if misused, could constitute not making the most of the time. Now, I don't want to be legalistic, and I would be legalistic if I said that any and all such things are bad. But here we are told to make the most of our time. It is very easy in our day to treat our lives as though they're our own, as our primary purpose in living is our own happiness and enjoyment. But we are Christians, we are Reformed, we are Presbyterians, and so we believe, or we should believe, that our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, that we are not our own. This applies to our bodies, it also applies to our time. We are given good, godly responsibilities, and we need to use our time in such a way that prioritizes those things, even if it means that Sometimes we have to trim our personal enjoyment. For one thing, we need to recognize that our lives are short. None of us in the grand scheme of history are going to be here for very long. We all get 80 or 90 or 100 years or so, and then we die. Now, it can be easy, especially when we're young and especially when we live in a generally safe society, to lose sight of the reality of, of the shortness of life and the certainty of coming death. And it's easy to waste our time. It's easy to approach life as, I'm going to do my own thing now. All that stuff about God and about serving Him, well, I can do that later. That'll still be there some other time. Then the next thing you know, you're too old or you're sick, and life has passed by and much of it wasted. We are to be good stewards of our time. Yes, we can enjoy this life. We can enjoy the things in it. But we need to be mindful and we need to be doing the things that God has called each of us to do. Now, the reason Paul gives for this, he says, the days are evil. Now, what does that mean? Paul and the Ephesians lived in a time where there was a lot of evil, even a lot of public evil. Ephesus was the city of the worship of Artemis. It was a capital of all kinds of paganism and idolatry. One time in Acts chapter 19, this pagan resistance to Christianity in Ephesus triggered a riot. There was at other times persecution breaking out against Christians. Paul himself would bear the brunt of this in various places he would go. But even... Without such overt indicators in this text, the truth is, in this fallen and sinful world, all the days are evil. 
There are days where evil and wickedness live and rule in the world. Sin is everywhere and people glorify it and chase after it. The blind lead the blind deeper into it. But we as Christians, as Christ's church, have the only true hope against evil days. Only we have the gospel of Christ which delivers from this evil world and its evil days to the life to come. So how do we live our lives in light of this? Doing the most for God's kingdom now and kingdom coming, or hiding out and living for ourselves? Now the second way we see walking in the fear of the Lord in verse 17 is walking in his will. We are told to understand it. Well, what is the will of the Lord? I grew up in evangelical churches, and there there almost seemed to be this mystical aspect to God's will, like it's some big secret, you need to discern it by prayer and fasting. Look for signs. Well, friends, God's will is not nearly so complicated. God's will is expressed in his word. So we are to hear the word, know the word, Love the Word, do what the Word says, and apply it to our lives. This is the will of the Lord, the will of the one who rules over us. Now, these two exhortations can be tough for us. We are a product of Western society, where we are taught to be free and taught to be self-determining. We get to pick our leaders, we get to shape our laws and our lands, and we get to spend our time how we want. To be subject to a Lord, to be subject to a king, can seem distant and foreign to us. These verses challenge us to rethink that. To think about ourselves, not in terms of us and our time and our things, but God and his things. Because this is what we were created for. But having seen how we are to walk sensibly, we now turn to our second point, walk in the spirit, or walk spiritually. Now we see here first an exhortation not about the spirits, but about spirits. We're told here not to be drunk with wine because it is dissipation, or as other translations say, debauchery. This is referring to excessive indulgence of the kind that leads to other problems. Drunkenness in this sense is to be filled with alcohol such that it takes over. And when alcohol takes over, bad things happen. People lose control of themselves, do reckless things, hurt themselves, hurt others. To drink to drunkenness is a sin. However, the main point of this reference to drunkenness is not for the sake of condemning drunkenness. By all means, this text is condemning drunkenness. But Paul is setting up a contrast. To be drunk is to be full of alcohol and controlled by it. Paul is saying instead of that kind of filling and controlling influence, we should have another. Namely, he says at the end of verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. Now, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, for one thing, it means being filled with the fruits of the Spirit, as we see those in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And one of those is self-control, which is the opposite of what is produced with drunkenness. 
Now, this can also challenge some conceptions in our world of what being filled with the Spirit might look like. We see in many churches the rise of Pentecostalism, and it chases a particular, they would call it a filling of the Spirit, a particular blessing of the Holy Spirit that itself is rather chaotic. You could go into a worship service in one of these churches, you might see a lot of people speaking in tongues or getting slain in the Spirit where they all start falling over and rolling around on the ground and dancing around. And I'm not making this up. These are the things that they really do. They start saying and declaring things and claiming that they're prophetic, but they end up not having a whole lot to do with what Scripture tells us about the spiritual life. Because being filled with the Spirit is not chasing a feeling. It's not chasing an experience. No, it's grounded in the objective realities that God has revealed about himself. God is a God of order, not of chaos. Being filled with the Spirit produces peace and self-control. It produces sobriety, not merely in terms of not being intoxicated with alcohol or drugs, but sobriety in terms of clarity of mind, clarity of will, clarity of purpose. And we see what this sober, spirit-filled life looks like in the following verses. In verse 19, we see one aspect of this spirit-filled life. We see singing. The church is commanded to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, a lot gets made of this verse regarding what we should sing in worship. This also came up last fall when we looked at Colossians. Now, it does tell us, for one thing, that we should use the Psalms in worship. Since you've been here tonight, you've already done that a few times, in fact. We sang a psalm, we read a psalm, and I called us into worship with a psalm. Now, some of our well-intended Reformed brethren, they would actually interpret this text to say that only the Psalms should be sung. They have their reasons. They claim that certain translations of the Greek require this. I don't think that they're correct. Now, I can respect these brothers and sisters and their concern for the purity of worship, but at the end of the day, I think what this text is telling us is rather clear. We sing psalms, but we are also permitted to use other songs that are in accord with God's word. Whatever is sung, though, should reflect God's truth. You might remember me telling you before I used to play and uh, lead church worship teams, basically. They're bands back when I was a Baptist. Now, I know that there are sincere and well-intended brothers and sisters who want to sing about God in ways that glorify God. But a lot of what passes itself off as worship in our days shifts the focus away from God and towards us, towards people, towards singers, almost as performers. It's put together and performed in such a way to elicit a kind of emotional response from the people. To maybe even, because it often runs together with Pentecostalism, create the things I described earlier, this alleged filling with the Spirit. The lyrics of modern worship songs are often focused on us. They're focused on people. They're not focused on God and His glory. 
This is why we do our Reformed worship the way we do. It's simple, it's scriptural, and it is, in all ways, seeking to focus on God's glory. Now, we also see here at the end of verse 19, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So it's not merely that we come together and do those things, go through the motions. We sing these songs to believe them because we believe them. When you come here to worship and sing the songs, think about what you're singing and why. Let it teach you. Let it change you. Let it impact you. Do it not just with your lips and with your actions, but with your heart. Worship God in spirit and in truth. So we have seen how we are to walk sensibly and walk spiritually, but now we turn to our final point, verses 20 and 21. Walk in service. Now, in a way, we're still talking about walking sensibly and walking in the spirit, but there's a pivot here from talking about worship to talking about our conduct. We see three aspects of this conduct. First, we see that our walk is to be thankful. Giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that we have, everything that we are, is a gift from God. We didn't earn it. We didn't make it. It didn't come under our own power, and we have no claim to it. Everything on earth is the Lord's. Everything He gives us flows from His goodness. The air that we breathe is God's air. The food that we eat and the drink that we drink, they belong to God. The people in our lives, they are God's creatures. Our possessions are blessings from God's hand. None of us are self-made people. We did not get where we are by any effort or strength of our own. And this should cause us, as we consider it, to be thankful and to acknowledge God's goodness to us and all the good gifts that he has given us. Next, we receive instruction as to how we are to express our thankfulness to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a model for how we pray. We pray to the Father in Jesus' name. But second, we also see that we are to submit to one another. Now, biblical submission gets a lot of discussion in our day. It provokes a lot of controversy. We're Americans. As I've said before, we, we're free, we're individuals, and so this whole idea of submission can rub us the wrong way. In fact, in the passage right after this one is one of the most famous teachings about wives submitting to husbands in the Bible. Other passages like Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, we see instructions on how to submit to the civil authorities. But before and apart from any particular submission in particular relationships, Paul gives this exhortation to all believers to submit to one another. Submission is a general characteristic of the Christian life. So what does that mean and what does it look like? Well, as Christians, remembering that we are not our own, that we, our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him, we do not live for ourselves, we live for others. 
We seek the betterment of others even if it comes at our own expense. We're not to be characterized by selfishness and self-interest. We live loving and self-sacrificial lives in how we deal with one another. Why do we do this? Well, we see in this the third aspect of this conduct. We have a reason that is also our example. We do this out of reverence for Christ. See, Jesus Christ accomplished our redemption as an act of submission. Though being the eternal Son of God, equal with the Father, he took on the form of a servant and entered into this fallen and sinful creation. He suffered all the temptations and trials and sorrows of this world. In doing so, he did not sin. He kept the law perfectly, as no human has ever done, going all the way back to Adam and Eve. He submitted himself to an illegitimate trial and a criminal's death so that by this he might drink the cup of God's wrath which lay on us. And only after this submission, after this humiliation, he was raised from the dead and taken up into glory where he now rules and reigns. Our submission is out of our love and reverence for Christ because of the great love that he has shown for us. See, this text and this message tonight, they've been very ethical. They've been very much in the form of these commands and these imperatives. But we must not lose sight of why we do these things and should want to do these things. It is because of what Christ has done for us. So we've seen tonight in this text how we are to walk wisely in light of what Christ has done for us. We have seen how we are to walk sensibly, with wisdom, with stewardship of our time. We've seen how we are to walk spiritually, how we are to reject drunkenness and instead be filled with the Spirit and worship in spirit and in truth. And then finally, we've seen how we are to walk in service, living lives of thankfulness, submission, and reverence and awe for this great salvation we have in Christ. Perhaps you're here tonight and you hear of this great salvation in Christ and you do not know if it is yours. Well, tonight the gospel is once again offered to you. Jesus Christ died to save sinners. To those who would repent of their sins and believe in his name, he offers forgiveness and he offers everlasting life. And so believe in Christ today. Perhaps tonight you are a Christian, but you hear these words of the apostle and you find them confronting. I mean, these are things that are not easy. As I've described, they often rub up against our conceptions of ourselves and how our lives are to be run. It's hard to live a life that prioritizes others at the expense of ourselves. It's not always our first instinct to faithfully worship God as he requires. It's not always easy to use our time and our other good gifts in the service of Christ and his kingdom. This text challenges us to examine ourselves, to repent where we need to repent, and to walk in the way that God intends for us to walk, the way of his wisdom. It's not the easy way. It's not the way of the world. But it's the way of Christ, who has given us this great salvation. So may we all have this salvation, 
May we all trust in Christ and walk in his wisdom. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Though in many ways it challenges what we often think about ourselves and about you and about your church. I pray that you would write these words on our hearts, that we would put them into practice, that we would walk according to the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of all wisdom, that we would use our gifts, that we would use our time for your service, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. And I pray that all here tonight would believe the gospel, proclaim the gospel, that we would all be preserved and kept in it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.